Good morning. Oh, it is good to see you all here today. I am so glad that you can be worshiping with us. The story of Exodus really begins with the people of Exodus in, in a captivity in Egypt. But it really doesn't start there. It really begins in the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, when Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers and to cut his brothers a little bit of slack. Joseph was kind of a goober, probably not worth selling him into slavery over, but you know, he was kind of a goober. They sold him into slavery. He went to Egypt. It's a long twisted story. Eventually he becomes second in command in all of Egypt. And through his, his dreams that God has given him, his business acumen, the, the, the nation of, of Egypt was saved through, through Joseph's uh, planning. He was, he was then rewarded, he and his family, the land of Goshen, which was a very fertile land and which was good because his family were shepherds. And so they went to Goshen, they were shepherds, they were very successful and they began to fulfill, I guess, the Lord's command to be fruitful and multiply because they certainly did. And eventually the new Pharaoh, if you speed forward about 300 years, the new Pharaoh, Pharaoh is just a, a title, it's not a name, the new king, the new Pharaoh of Egypt, uh, either forgot about Joseph or didn't care about Joseph for he began to view them not as um, uh, friends but rather as potential enemies. And he began to persecute them and oppress them and enslave them. So much so to the point where he was so fearful of them that he ordered the midwives to kill all the baby boys. And sometimes when we're reading these stories, we just kind of read over them and we think, oh yeah, that was terrible. No, imagine that. I just had a grandson. He's less than a month old. Imagine the heartache and the grief and the anxiety. And anxiety so much so that Moses' mother put him in the Nile River as a child in order to help save him. What would it take? I mean, I've told you, my, my new grandson, Conrad, he is a big crybaby. They put him in the river, they'd find him in like two seconds flat. <laughs> that kid's either gonna be a preacher or a singer or something, man, because he's got good lungs. But what would cause a mother to place her child in a basket in the Nile River thinking that was a better option than him staying home with her. They were oppressed beyond what we can really even comprehend. And so in Exodus chapter 3, the people cry out to God. And this is what the Bible says, that the Lord says then in response, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. And I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. And I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them. That's the steps of compassion. I have seen, I have heard, I know what's going on. And I respond, I have come down. And so God calls Moses. Moses, who had grown up in the palace, rescued from that basket, raised in the palace by the princess of the, of the king, the pharaoh, was a fugitive, killed an Egyptian taskmaster, ran off to the other side of the wilderness, got married, lived there for 40 more years, and now at the age of 80, 
and his brother is 83, God calls him to go back to Pharaoh and to, to proclaim, let my people go. Well, Pharaoh doesn't like that idea very much. He doesn't want his, his you know, slave labor to just walk out the door scot-free. And so he says no. And then God, we looked at it last week, proceeds to send 10 plagues. We looked at nine last week, one this week. The, the Nile River turned to blood. His magicians, intellectia, uh, did the same thing. How that happened, I don't know. And then, and then God sent frogs. Again, his magicians did the same thing. Did they have a frog up their sleeve? I don't know. And then, and then there was gnats, or the New King James Version, which these journals are, says lice. I don't know, the Hebrew word there is a little obscure. It could be gnats, it could be lice, it could be mosquitoes, whatever it is, it's bad. Who wants to be filled with gnats or lice or skeeters? Not me. And then flies, and then, and then livestock was killed, dead cows everywhere, except, except the Israelite cows and livestock. Boils, hail, and then today's plague the plague of the firstborn. And finally we get to Exodus chapter 11. And I think we have to have this conversation because when you're dealing with Old Testament passages, sometimes you run into things like Exodus chapter 11. And that's the plague of the firstborn. And that's a pretty serious plague. All right, we've had darkness, we've had locusts, we've had frogs, we've had all these other things, but now the last plague, the most significant plague. That's why I couldn't just lump it in with last week's nine plagues. This one, this one deserves its own time. Because I think the question we need to ask is, did God overreact? And this seems pretty harsh. This is, this is what, what in chapter 11, verse 4 says, about midnight, Moses is telling Pharaoh what's going to happen. About midnight, I, quoting from the Lord, I will go out into the midst of Egypt. Now, up until this point, it's always been Moses raising his hand, Aaron's staff at work. But this time now, with this plague, it's God Almighty himself. I will go out in the midst of Egypt and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne, even to the firstborn of the female servant who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the animals. And so the question is, where? okay, I get, I get it, Pharaoh's son. He's the one that's been defiant. He's the one that's been hard-hearted. He's the one that's saying no, no, no to God Almighty. But even the firstborn of the female servant... What did she do? Is, is God overreacting? Can we ask that question on a Sunday morning? Here's the deal. The Jews were oppressed for hundreds of years. Not simply from Pharaoh. This wasn't just a Pharaoh problem. This was an Egyptian problem and a people problem. In fact, Pharaoh, when he's talking about it in in chapter 9, and he's talking about the, the circumstance on page 40 in your, in your journal, he says this, I have sinned this time, the Lord is righteous, and my people, are, and, my people and I are wicked. Chapter 9, he's recognizing, it's not just him, 
my people and I, we're all in the same boat. We're all wicked. See, in the very first chapter of, of Exodus, we're told how the Egyptians feared the Israelites, how they treated them ruthlessly, how they, how they, they made their lives bitter, how they became slave taskmasters. This wasn't just Pharaoh's problem. This was Egypt's problem. And, and in fact, in, in chapter one, if you were to go there on page, I don't know, four, I guess, it says this, and they were in dread of the children of Israel. So the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor, harshly, in other words. And they made their lives bitter with hard bondage in mortar and brick and all matter in service of the field. It wasn't just Pharaoh, it was the people. And God sent plague after plague after plague, nine other plagues before now. And guess what? The people were still in bondage. And the Egyptians were still serving as taskmasters. And there's no record of picket signs. There's no record of rebellion. There's no, you know, like Russia halfway yesterday. There's no attempt to coup. Pharaoh was in charge. And they were going along with it. And they were benefiting from the oppressed, from the Israelites. And they were, they were okay with killing all of, the, all of the baby boys. And so what does God do in the face of such oppression? Again, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God sides with the oppressed. You know, God notices the lowest and the lowliest. Here's a little history lesson. The Church of the Nazarene is named Nazarene. We got our name from J.P. Whitney, who was president of Southern Cal University. They're trying to come up with the name of this new church back in 1895, and they chose the name Nazarene. Why did they chose Church of the Nazarene? They chose it because Nazarene was a derogatory term in the first century. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And the whole point was, let's, let's side with those who are oppressed. Let's side with those who are lowly. Let's side with those who, are, who the rest of society ignores. That's who the church, that's our history. You know, that's also God's history. He sides with the oppressed. He sides with the ignored. He sides with those that the rest of society overlooks. Too often, we only pay attention to the rich and famous. You know, it used to be that way, what, in the 70s, 80s, that TV show, Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. Remember, those of you who are my age, remember that show. Now we don't have that show. Now we have TikTok, you know, or we have Twitter. And who's got all the followers and what is the rich and famous doing? And we noticed it even this week. It's so obvious even this week, you know, the... The, the tragedy, there was three tragedies at sea, probably more than that, but three noteworthy tragedies at sea. Our world was captivated by those five people in the submersible vessel. I watched the news one night, half of the, new, half of the evening news was all consumed with those five. Oh, they're in the North Atlantic, and, and it was tragedy, five people. But this same week, 500 refugees were on a ship that capsized. 750 refugees were on the ship, but 500 people died just off the coast of Greece. Hardly anything mentioned about the 500 people. The same day that the five people died in the North Atlantic, another ship of refugees capsized off the coast of Spain. Dozens and dozens were killed. Those are nameless refugees. They're not paying $250,000 for this. These are people who, 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 who gave up everything to try to, you know, escape persecution or whatever was going on in their country. 
and they're lost. And I thought about that, and I thought, you know, now I think every single life matters to God Almighty. And every single person matters to God Almighty. And so to kind of qualify it, I don't know that we can, but I think God Almighty's heart went out for those 500 refugees. And I think he knew every single name of those dozens and dozens of refugees that died off the coast of Spain. And their pictures weren't on the evening news like the five in the North Atlantic, but God knew every single one. Why? Because God recognizes the the lowly. God looks to the ones that everyone else overlooks. Jesus came when he announced his, his coming, I have come to set the oppressed free. And that's exactly what's happening here in in Exodus chapter 11. The people of Israel had been oppressed for centuries. And finally, 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 they call out to God and he hears them and he comes down and he rescues them. And finally, with this 10th plague, God's judgment came. We don't like to talk about um, judgment always. There's a few things we know about God. Now, if anybody ever tells you they know everything about God, you run away from that person. (laughs) You know, I've had four years of college and three years of seminary and literally read thousands and thousands of pages of theology. and, And I know nothing. I'm just scratching the surface. Well, this is what we know. There is a God, and God's not us. We know that. There is a God, and his ways are not always our ways. Um, I, I say this all the time. I'm in sales, not management. And so I don't know the ways of God Almighty. And sometimes the things that I wish God would do, they don't happen. I mean... I've prayed over hundreds of people to be healed and made well. And many times their healing happens when it's in heaven. And sometimes that wasn't quite frankly my will. You know, you take, you take, you go and pray for a kid in a children's hospital that has cancer. And there are times when God, I don't understand the mind of God. Can I just admit that to you? I don't know why God does the way God does things a lot of times. But I know this, God is good, and we can trust him, and we can count on him, and he sees even the lowest of the lowest. And there's one more thing about God that we can know for sure, and that's that God is a jealous God. He won't play second fiddle. In a few weeks, we're going to talk about the Ten Commandments that he gives in Exodus 20. In the very first one on that list, you know it. Thou shalt not have any other gods before me. Our God is a, is a jealous God. And he, and he won't put up with, with our devotion to anything else. 
And in, and in Exodus chapter 12, when he's talking about uh, the Passover that we're going to talk about next week, God does make a way. God does make a, a way for salvation. People put blood over the doorposts. But when he talks about what happens, this is what he says in chapter 12. For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, and I will execute judgment. So this isn't just against Pharaoh, and it isn't just against the Egyptian people. It's a recognition that their devotion, their complete devotion, has gone to these false and phony gods, and God is now making his, bringing his judgment against those false gods. Now again, we don't always like talking about judgment. We like talking about that God is a God of grace, and he is. You know, grace is, is I get what I don't deserve. And we love talking about God as a God of mercy, and he is. I don't get what I do deserve. But God is also, in the sovereignty and mystery of God Almighty, he is also a God of judgment. And again, we shy away from that language. We don't like it. We don't like people judge us. We don't want to be judged. You know, you hear that, don't be a judge. We hear that all the time. But Jesus didn't shy away from such language. And Jesus often talked about judgment. And he talked about eternity. And he talked about heaven and hell. And those were all reality. He talked about a judgment day. A literal judgment day. When we stand before God Almighty, Jesus talked about that. And you know why Jesus talked about that? This is not rocket science. He talked about it because there's a judgment day coming. And he was serious about it. On the Sermon on the Mount, we talk about the Sermon on the Mount, you know, and that's one of the most powerful sermons. Jesus talked about, about our eternal accommodations. In his very last sermon, It's called the Olivet Discourse. It's found in Matthew 25. The very last recorded sermon of Jesus. It's it's in the final week. Jesus knows he's going to be executed on Friday. And he preaches this sermon. What would you preach if you had one last sermon? You would think that that would be like super important, right? You know what's coming. Here's the sermon. This is it. This is what you've really got to hear. So in that sermon, he tells three stories. And the first story is about 10 bridesmaids who have oil. Five have oil in their lamp and five don't. Those that have oil in their lamp, they're ready when the bridegroom comes. The bridegroom's gonna come and the important thing is you gotta have oil in your lamp when the bridegroom comes. Well, five prepared and five didn't. So Jesus, point number one in the final sermon is you've got to be ready. I'm coming again, you gotta be ready. The second story in that last sermon is a story about the, the parable of the talents. That's when he gave one guy five talents, and one guy two talents, one guy one talent, and the guy with five doubled it to 10, the guy with two doubled it to four, but the guy with one buried it. And the point of his story is, you've got to, until I return, he's building, one story builds on the other, he's saying, until I return, you've got to use those gifts and abilities for my glory. You've got to use it. Don't bury your talents. Don't waste your talents. I've given you talents. Use them until I return. And then the last story, the very last story, is a story when a shepherd is separating goats and sheep. 
And there's only two kinds of animals. There's goats and sheep. You can't be a koala bear. You can't be a skunk. You're either a goat or a sheep. And the sheep are what you want to be. The sheep are, he calls the righteous. And the goats are what you don't want to be. The unrighteous. And he tells us why the sheep are sheep. Because when I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was naked, you gave me some clothes. When I was an outcast, you invited me in. When I was in prison, you visited me. And the sheep, the sheep are like, wow, Jesus, that's great. That's awesome. That's wonderful. We're glad we're in, but we don't want to bring this up. But ah, we don't ever remember doing that. We don't remember seeing you hungry. We don't remember seeing you. If we did, we would have done it. But we never saw, we never saw you hungry, Jesus. We're glad we're in, but we never saw you that way. And Jesus' response is, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Now, if the story would have ended right there, it'd been great. Right? We all would have said, woo, that's a wonderful story. People who didn't think they were going to get into heaven, get into heaven. What a great ending to the story. They didn't know it, but they're in. But Jesus doesn't end the story there. There's the goats. And they don't get in. And they say, Jesus, you know, why aren't we getting in? And Jesus' response was, for I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. And I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. And I was a stranger, you didn't invite me in. And I needed clothes, and you didn't clothe me. And I was sick and in prison, and you didn't look after me. And the goats are, are baffled. The only thing that the sheep and the goats have in common is that they both are surprised by the outcome. They say, wait a minute, Jesus. Wait, 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 hold on a minute. We never saw you hungry. We never saw, if we would have saw you hungry, man, we would have, we would have had a seven-course meal. We never saw you naked. We would have saw you naked. We would have given you clothes. We would have given you a shirt off our back. And Jesus responds to the goats. I tell you the truth. Whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Exodus 11, Jesus notices those that everyone else overlooks. He has come for the oppressed. He has come for the downtrodden. He has come for those that are hungry and thirsty. And the truth of the matter is, oh, this is hard for us to hear. Our gracious, loving, merciful, jealous, powerful, mighty God is also a God of judgment. That... It matters to him how we spend our time. It matters to him how we give our lives and what we're giving our lives to. And Exodus 11 is a story of the coming judgment. But Jesus' story in Matthew 25 is a story of the coming judgment. And the thing that, the thing that I keep coming back to is, uh, what does it take for God Almighty to get the attention of the Egyptian people in Exodus. He's done all these things. They didn't get their attention. They were still oppressed. They were still downtrodden. All those things. Plague, 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 plague. They didn't get it. And I think, oh, those stupid Egyptians. Look around you. Your land is desolate. You stupid Egyptians. Why couldn't you see it? 
But then I think, oh, you stupid people, Rob, why don't you see what's going on around you? And the choices you're making and the places you're going and where you're putting your heart and devotion. St. Paul in the book of Romans said in that very familiar verse in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us are in trouble. But the good news is from, from, from Romans 5, all who call in the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's not hard. It's just recognizing where we're at, where we're headed, the, our devotions, and saying, I need to call on Jesus. Because there is a day when I'll stand before a holy God. But the good, good, good news from Romans chapter 6. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Once we've accepted Jesus, once we, we, we have him in our heart and life, we don't have to worry. It's not a fearful thing. Oh, my land. It's a glorious thing.